Genesis chapter 2, we're looking uh, this morning at verses 15 and 17, and then we're going to look at some of the follow-up text uh, that goes along with this particular passage. There was a book written by a fellow by the name of Robert Coleman. Robert Coleman wrote a book entitled Written in the Blood, and he tells a story. The story is a sad little story and a happy little story all at the same time. It's about a little boy who had a sister. The little boy's sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had a disease that the, the boy had had earlier, um, but her only chance for recovery now was for a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered that disease. Since the two children had the very same rare blood type, the boy, this little boy, was the appropriate donor to give blood to his sister. The doctor looked at him and says, Would you give blood to your sister Mary? The boy hesitated. You can see the little boy's face, right? little quivering lip. It's a scary-sounding thing, right? He smiled and he says, Yeah, for my sister I will. And soon the two children were, they were wheeled into the hospital room and Mary was very, very pale and thin and her brother, he was so very healthy. Neither of them spoke, but their eyes met. The boy grinned. The nurse inserted the needle in his arm. He didn't smile for very much longer. He watched the blood flow through the tube. He'd been hooked up for quite some time and he finally had a question he had to ask. He looked up and he said, Doctor, when do I die? It's only at that very moment that the doctor understood why he was so hesitant. Why his lip had trembled when he had agreed to do this. He thought he was giving all of his blood for his sister. And in that moment, he said, I'll do it. I'll do it for my sister. We're considering the atonement. One who was asked, will you give your all that your brothers and your sisters might be saved? This is the passage of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, we understand what has happened. Man has been placed in the midst of the garden, and in doing so, he has been given the dominion mandate. In in verse 15, it says, The Lord God, He took man and He placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He had a job to do, and He was placed right there. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying this, He says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. What a wonderful thing. It's all on the table. It's all yours. Enjoy. Know that the best of all creation is here for you, that you be blessed by it. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Verse 17, it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Pray with me. Lord God, and... In these few words, we find so much, Lord. The unfolding of biblical history from this point to the per- to point of Christ uh, to the day in which we live until that day uh, when we see our Savior face to face. Lord, uh, through all of this, we find the unfolding uh, revelation of Your Word to be a challenge but to be a comfort, to be a rebuke but to be a balm. Lord, we thank You that You speak to us. Help us to hear You this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So we look at this passage. We see right here that the Lord has given Adam a home. It says He put him in the garden. The word there, nuach. uh, The Hebrew word, to give him rest. To give him residence. 
This was Adam's home. Now, we see this, this wonderful promise and this wonderful provision given. We see here creation ordinances, that is, positive things that Adam must do. It says, verse 15, God placed man in the garden, gave him this residence, and in this residence, what is he to do? He is to work it and to keep it, and as Rex said, to eat. Typically a command of God we don't have a hard time obeying. But there are also negative parts of this obligation. There is a specific prohibition. It says, from all the other trees you may eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And then we see that there's a consequence attached to it. Indeed, a condemnation that's attached to it. It says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. More than simply a tummy ache, that this would be a judgment and a condemnation that would fall. It says we see a relationship, a special relationship between God and Adam in which God promises privileges but also promises judgment. It's a relationship that has life and death consequences. If Adam is faithful, we see in this, there is a prospect of fellowship with God for all eternity. But if he's unfaithful, God says what? You shall surely die. The biblical word we use here The word that we use is covenant, and we Presbyterians love covenants. Covenant is a word that we'll use a lot. Matter of fact, we love it so much that you can find a covenant church, covenant Presbyterian church in virtually any city you go to. Uh, You uh, head up to Lookout Mountain, and you find Covenant College, our denomination's undergraduate institution, and then you go to St. Louis and go to Covenant Theological Seminary. We like covenants. And God speaks to us in covenants. God makes covenants with His people. God initiates them. And what's wonderful is we're going to be looking at, and God fulfills them. Now, we need a good working definition of a covenant. A covenant, we can say, is this, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. A bond, we think about a contract, an agreement, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. That means that there are life and death consequences associated with it, that bond in blood, for life is in the blood. But it says sovereignly administered, that this is, this is a covenant which is overseen and controlled and dictated by God himself. So we find a covenant made with Adam here. He says, work the garden, keep the garden, eat thereof, but... Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, now let's see how this plays out. Simple covenant. There is one don't. That one don't was do not eat of this tree. Eat of everything else, but not this one tree. We find that in Genesis chapter 2. Well, we do see at the conclusion of Genesis chapter 2, by the way, ladies, what has taken place here um, uh, is before uh, God says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And we see, as, as Kirby Smith described yesterday at Margaret Jones's wedding so beautifully, he said, and then it was God took uh, Eve uh, from the side of Adam. Not, not from his head that she should rule over him, uh, not from his foot that she should be trampled under his feet, but from his side, closest to his heart. This would be a partner. This would be a helper suitable. Adam cries out, he says, This is at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Uh, a use of the words there. 
And so we see this beautiful picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. Then chapter 3 comes along and immediately we see Adam, we see Eve, and we see the beguiling serpent that comes and deceives and says, in the day that you eat of this, you shall not surely die. In, In eating of this, you will be made like God and God doesn't want you to be like Him. Who asked the question of the woman in particular and then of the man as well? Has God really said that? And if he said it, do you think he really means it? We see them uh, eat. They recognize that they had been, though they had been naked in the garden, they've been unashamed. They recognize shame now, uh, for they are sinners. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. They hide from the presence of God. God comes, he speaks to them, he asks them what's going on. There is the discussion about uh, the sin, the transgression that's happened, and then comes the curse. We find in chapter 3 the curse, the curse that comes to the serpent, the curse that comes upon the man, the curse that becomes upon the woman. In the midst of all of that, God speaking, look with me in Genesis chapter 3.15. 3.15, as he's speaking to the serpent, God says this, He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking about striking the heel, striking the head, we know which one of those is a fatal blow. The striking of the head is a fatal blow. The striking of a heel, not so much. And and there's this promise here. This has been historically referred to as the first evangelism, the proto-euangelion, the the explanation of that which is to come. Though it's, it's shadowy, though it's vague, though it's not fully understandable as as seeing what we see in Christ, we do see a promise that there will be a provision of God and it will come through the offspring of the woman that shall crush sin and death. The promise of something to come. And then we see in this passage consequences of the sin. Consequences, we think about this. Yes, forgiveness, we, we know that to be a biblical concept, but consequences of sin is a real thing. If somebody were to steal your wallet, you can forgive them and you should forgive them. We should forgive them. Now, there's consequences to that. If somebody steals my wallet, the next time I'm going to run track, uh, I'm not going to hand that person my wallet and say, here, will you hold on to this for a while while I go run, right? I'm not going to, if if an accountant embezzles from me, I'm not going to have them balancing my checkbook anymore. There's an issue of consequences there. One of the consequences is broken trust. The other thing is, if somebody were to steal my wallet, I can forgive them and at the same time look to the fact that the the state is going to put them in the jail. That's a consequence, and it is not uh, apart from forgiveness. It is my responsibility as a believer in Christ Jesus to forgive. But as Romans 13 explains, uh, the the state has a responsibility uh, to deal with those consequences. The same thing for a parent. You have a child that misbehaves, that disobeys. You forgive them, yes. But there's consequences. We see consequences in Genesis chapter 3, right at the very end. The Lord God says, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. We see exile from the garden to be a consequence of his sin. If we look back in uh, in the curse that came upon Adam in particular, verse 17, 
of chapter 3. It says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. So as he's been exiled, it says there at the very end of the chapter, that he would work the ground from which he was taken. There are also the consequence that he's going he's to work. When you're out weeding your garden... And for some reason, the weeds, they, they just flourish in my yard rather than grass. You know, well, we go back to Genesis chapter 3. We go back to the consequences of the fall. So we see these consequences, but then we see something amazing right here. And this is really the beginning as we're going to be unfolding the whole issue of atonement. And I'm going to show you right here how this begins to unfold before our eyes. We see in Genesis chapter 3, we see in Genesis 3 that there is, there is curse, there is sin, there is God's displeasure, there's God's disappointment in this, there is uh, the serpent lodging salvos against Almighty God in war. But we also see in Genesis 3, we see wonderful provision and we see great hope. In, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, it says, The man at this point, now all this has taken place, and it, and it speaks about then the man called his wife's name. Uh, her name in the Hebrew was Kava. Uh, we kind of migrate that into the name Eve. It, it comes from the same, the same issue there. But the, the word Kava, it, it means life. Now think about what's happened. A curse to the serpent, a curse to the woman, a curse to man, a curse to creation itself. And then the man called his wife's name life. Now, that just seems odd for a moment, doesn't it? Just, it seems to be jarring uh, when you think about it right there. And it says, because she was the mother of all living. After a curse, Adam says, my wife's name is life. I don't believe it's escapable that the, the issue there is that, that he heard the promise of Genesis 3.15, that, that enmity and the crushing of the head of the serpent. And, and the one who would crush the head of the serpent would be the one who would come out of Eve, that she would be the mother of another living creature, that there would be birth, and that in the birth there would be a Savior. And in this promise, Adam in faith says, so my wife's name shall be life. Now, I would encourage you husbands in the room to see such a wealth of other encouragement by thinking about calling your wife life. That it, that it is a wonderful provision of God, not simply in the raising of children, but indeed of making our life amazing and rich. So we see this provision and we see that God has given Adam Eve, he looks and he says, oh, I rejoice now in life. But then we see something else. Because life is not what had been promised in Genesis chapter 2, is it? It says, the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. But we see at the end of the story, they are exiled on foot out of the garden. And so we say, what's going on? Did God say, you'll die in the day you eat that? And then he goes, whoops, <laughs> kidding. We know that's not the way that God speaks to us. That God in speaking to us, He speaks truth and His truth is, is perfect and wondrous and amazing. But we also need to see that His love and provision 
is far beyond all that we could imagine or hope for. We see in Genesis chapter 3 another provision of God. Now think about what happened. Adam and Eve had been created. And, and one thing that did not exist in the garden is department store catalogs. Why? They were naked and unashamed. They, 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 just, they, they lived in, in perfect bliss and perfect peace before God. They had nothing about which they should be ashamed. That whole idea of being naked and unashamed is not simply speaking in a sexual nature. It's just talking about that before God, before God, they had nothing to hide. They had nothing to hide. But then what happened? It says when they ate, the very first thing it says is they realized. They realized their shame. They had something to be ashamed of. And so what did they do? They went and they grabbed leaves. Now just... I mean, you have to imagine the foolishness. We talked about uh, the, the distinction between wisdom and foolishness as we looked at Proverbs 26 and Meryl's reading today. But think about the foolishness of snatching leaves off the tree and trying to find some way of covering up with these leaves. It's pretty, pretty silly. Now, I would say that here in the south, in this particular time of year, if you stand outside, eventually you'll be covered with a nice thick level, layer of, of yellow pollen but to snatch leaves off the trees to try to cover yourself is foolishness. So they grabbed at leaves. They tried to hide. And then what did they do? It, it says that they tried to hide amongst the trees and the, and the bushes. It says they hid themselves when they heard God walking in the cool of the evening. They hid themselves among the trees and the bushes. So the leaves didn't work. Let's try the whole tree. They're trying to hide themselves from God. But what did God He see? He said, how is it that you know you have something to be ashamed about. How is it that shame has come to be a part of this equation? How is it that shame is now involved in, my, in this relationship? Did you do what I told you not to do? And so then what did God do? We see this in chapter 3 as well. If you look right there uh, at the, at near the very end, right before where we read about uh, the exile from the garden, and right after where we read about Adam naming his wife. This is verse 20. It says, The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then verse 21, it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God made them clothes. God covered their shame. How did he do this? By death. This is the first death of the Bible. The first death in all of creation is not Adam. Adam did not die that day. It's not Eve. Eve did not die that day, though they deserve death. That's what God in His covenant, that bond and blood sovereignly administered, He said, you work the land, you eat of its abundance, you enjoy paradise, but do not eat of the tree, for in that day you shall surely die. That was the clear articulation of the covenant. And in that day, Adam did not die. Eve did not die, though death became a part of their life, and they would eventually close their eyes to this world. But death came nonetheless. It came to cover their sin. It came to cover their shame. And God Himself took the life of an animal. And He fashioned a tunic. And it's, it's very specific about that. It took the skin of it. It didn't say He took the wool, just sheared the sheep. That would have been an easier thing to do. No, He took the life of an animal to make 
more suitable covering to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. God brings us a substitute. One who died that day that was not Adam, was not Eve. Now we see in, in all of this, it's an amazing picture of those who were loved by God, by His children. We look at this and we see a direct blessing. We think about the direct blessing of, of righteousness as they were living in the garden. God's direct interaction with them. God's direct provision and blessing to them. But we do see here the gloriously gracious nature of God and that we have, while direct blessing, we have a substitute condemnation. The animal dies. What this does is it points us to the atonement. It points us to the atonement of Jesus Christ. Specifically, and here are some longer words, but they're very important words, very significant words. It's a substitutionary atonement. It is a vicarious atonement. Substitutionary, we know what that is. Substitute, somebody in my place. We think about one who is in the place of another. And this substitute, we find perfectly, we see Jesus in our place. We think about a substitutionary atonement. We think about a vicarious atonement. A couple of definitions we need to have if we're going to be considering this. One is atonement in and of itself. That's a Bible word. That's a word that we use. We talk about in seminary. We talk about in Sunday school class. But if somebody says, what is this atonement of which you speak? Can you give a good definition? Not like one very, very clear, very simple definition of atonement is the work that Christ did in his life and death that earns our salvation. The work that Christ did in his life and his death to earn our salvation. That's what we're talking about when we talk about this atonement. And the other word that I use, we talked about substitutionary, we've talked about atonement, we talk about the word vicarious. That's another, another theological word that we use, and, and you think, well, what's the significance of that? Well, vicarious, we think about it, comes from the same root as the word vicar. Uh, vicarious means to be done for another, uh, acting or doing for another. We think about the crucifixion of Jesus, of Him hanging upon the cross. We think about the words of the thief on the cross. There was one thief who was mocking Jesus as he hanged there, and another thief who looked and he says, why do you say such things? We're hanging here for the sins that we did, but he is hanging here for the sins that he did not do. So even the thief upon the cross recognized that Jesus was not hanging there because of what he did. He was our vicarious atonement. He was our substitute in that day. And so for the very first time, Here in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, we have a picture of a substitutionary atonement and a picture of that in Christ to come. And we see that in Jesus Christ, like Adam and Eve, but perfectly and fully, our sin, our shame is covered. Like like God providing that which covered the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve, we find Christ clothes us in His righteousness. We wear His garment. We wear His righteousness before the throne of God because our sin has been covered because of a substitute. The Gospel's right here. And in this very, very statement, we see that God provides a sacrifice. God provides a sacrifice. We're going to see this throughout the biblical history. We see this in in, um, 
Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 going up Mount Moriah. And, and Isaac cries out to his father. He says, Dad, we're going up there to make a sacrifice. And I see the blade. I see the fire. I'm carrying the wood. But, but, but where is the sacrifice? The words of Abraham to his son says, God will provide for himself the sacrifice. And even as the son carried the wood to the hill, God would provide a sacrifice. And we're going to see how that unfolds wonderfully. We also see on Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah. You remember the sin of all of Israel as, as uh, wicked King Ahab and Jezebel are leading the nation astray and they're worshiping Baal, they're worshiping Asherah. They're doing all sorts of horrendous things. And as they're on top of Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah cries out for the fire of God to descend and the fire of God descends, but it does not consume the sinners. It consumes the bull upon the altar, a substitute, a, a vicarious sacrifice pointing us, anticipating Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. We will understand that in the day of Jesus, that Jesus is that lamb, the lamb provided for us. Now, what does all this mean? How does this change the way we live? Is this particular doctrine simply some dry theological topic that gets pastors all ginned up about you know, talking about these things? Or does it have real significance in the way we live our lives? And I would say yes to all of that. Oh, I do get excited. But I pray that you do as well to understand this, that it is spurred on by the love of God. A necessity for our salvation, but has been the eternal decree of God out of his love. Jesus explains this at one point. He's walking with Cleopas and his friend in Luke chapter 24. They're walking down the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears. They don't know it's Jesus, but he then explains. He says, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The necessity of the suffering of Christ for our salvation that would pay our price, a price we could not pay. For our sins warrant eternal damnation, death, real and lasting death, not the life that, that uh, Adam celebrated in naming his wife, but our sins really, really, no matter how good we think we are, our sins deserve death and condemnation forever. And so we can only humbly praise God when we say, God so loved me that he sent Christ in my place. The atonement is not a dry theological First John 4.10. Commit this to memory if you commit a single verse. First John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God first loved me. He first loved you. And then we love in response he loved us first. And what did He do? He said He sent His Son to be the propitiation. Another big word, I get it, propitiation. To make up for wrong and to earn favor. We've been forgiven, but we've also been declared to be God's beloved children. That's the fullness of propitiation. That, that what Christ has done is it's not only wipe the slate clean, but we are called in Romans chapter 8, co-heirs with Christ. This is what the substitute has done for us. And we need to see that perfectly, while Adam and Eve were exiled by the consequences of their sin, though they were covered temporarily with the skins of a sacrificed animal, we need to see that what Christ has done is that He brings us back to paradise. That He clothes us eternally in His righteousness. Robes that will not become moth-eaten or get out of style or out of size. We need to see that what Christ has done is He has paid the price for our wrong. 
and he has bestowed his honor and his righteousness upon us. My friends, today we need to know this truth, and that is that salvation requires atonement. Paying for our sins, earning our eternal righteousness, doing what we could not do for ourselves. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, While we were still weak, incapable, hear those words, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now someone will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person you might dare to die. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the substitute, the atonement for us. Oswald Chambers says this, you think about Oswald Chambers and his writings on prayer and righteousness, um, very rich. And I'll close with this quote. He says this, We need to understand that we trample the blood of the Son of God. We trample the blood of the Son of God if we think that we are forgiven simply because we're sorry for our sins. The only explanation for the unfathomable depth of the forgiveness of God is the death of Jesus Christ. It's not earned. All the pleading which deliberately refuses to recognize the cross is of no avail. He says no matter how hard we beg, if we don't see our salvation to be in the cross of Christ alone, then it's to no avail. It's battering at a door other than the one that Jesus has opened. Our Lord does not pretend that we are all right when we're all wrong. The atonement is a propitiation whereby God, through the death of Jesus, makes an unholy man holy. And we see this in shadows. We see this in in a vague way in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. But we see it unfolded perfectly in Jesus Christ. And we need to go forward from this day proclaiming Jesus as those who have understood what it means that Jesus stood in your place. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, thank You. Thank You that our faith is secure and founded upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him alone. We thank You, Lord God, that all that was required for our salvation has been accomplished in Jesus. Forgive us, Lord God, for thinking that it is through our pleading and through our actions, through our words, that we accomplish even a part of it. Lord, forgive us for trampling upon the blood of cross. Help us, Lord God, to see that on the cross our Savior was there in my place, that I might stand one day in Him, that my place becomes His. As we stand together for all eternity before Your throne, in Jesus' name, Amen.